you're working for a charity, working for a cause, working for something close to your heart. And there was that period of struggle. And at the end, you weren't given the million pounds, you earned a million pounds. Well, you wouldn't be happy. You'd have achieved eudaimonia. There's a slight difference. Hey guys, and welcome to Sustain This with Vivo Barefoot. My name is Emma Foster-Gearing. This podcast is about cutting through the bullshit and empowering people with courage and knowledge. The plan is to make these conversations as super authentic and as real as possible. So join us as we talk to the rule breakers and the experts and get involved. Our guest today is none other than Ross Edgley, an extreme athlete and sports science expert with a huge thirst for life. We ended up having a great chat about gender equality, stoicism, and why we need to look to resilience now more than ever. Welcome, mate. How has your lockdown been? Do you know, it's been okay. Like, I'm quite fortunate. I've got lots of um, green fields. I live in Chester. So, you know, lots of basically just get, getting back to kind of land rehab. I'm still, I'm still nursing a few injuries from the GB swim, which was still, you know, two years ago now, but I'm still not a great runner. I've just been eating and emerging from lockdown about 10 kilos heavier as well, which which is not pleasant on my knees when I'm running, but it's good. We had the pleasure of meeting last year at the swim run event down in Devon, which was such a pleasure to be at and such a big life-changing moment for me at least, and I know for lots of others. As many people know that are tuning in, what we're trying to do here is explore the kind of current situation around what's going on with the planet, what's going on with our health, and really how can we get to a better future. And the concept of sustainability, we think is just not fit for purpose anymore because we really don't want to keep the current state, right? We really want to kind of radically change that state. And I think that I personally believe that we need a, I, I like to call it a tipping point of courage around really demanding a better way of life. So, you know, you and I share a common interest in water polo. And I really relate to a lot of what you said in terms of the type of mental and physical resilience that that sport especially gave us growing up. And, and I'm interested to hear from you at the very start of this. How has your new book explored a new face of resilience? And how do you think that that background, that life you had around water polo and, and everything from your GB swim to, to, you know, all the stuff you do with strong man and everything like that how has that shaped your current understanding of what resilience is do you know what? i'm glad you asked straight off the bat actually just because i think one thing with the new book that was so great to try and get down on paper is is this idea that resilience is suffering strategically managed and the reason i use that phrase is because i think so often we are taught in terms of resilience to man up to grit your teeth you know, to, you know, bite down and get through it. All of these like cliches. And I realized that they weren't working for me on the Great British Swim. My tongue was falling off, you know, I had a wetsuit chafing. I was losing half my neck, you know, leaving parts of my body around the coastline of Great Britain. So this idea of, of, of manning up and gritting my teeth wasn't working. And, and that's when I came to this definition that resilience is suffering strategically managed in that it's a intelligent approach. It's not enough to just... Um, great example, if we were all running right now and somebody put their hand up and said, uh, we were running a marathon and a mile in, they said, I've got a pebble in my shoe. There'd be nothing resilient about going, oh, you know, man up and get through it. No, take the pebble out of your shoe. You know, limit <laughs> limitations and research restrictions. And 
The best thing about the, the art of resilience is the fact that I got to reverse engineer and deconstruct the whole swim to show that, that genuinely there was nothing heroic about me. There was nothing superhuman about me. There was people even saying, oh, you're, you're really, you know, you're a great swimmer. I was like, I'm an all right swimmer, but I'm good at floating and eating. Like, so it was just this idea of not, not even self-deprecation, but really showing that the strategies that I used are available to all of us. That was one of the nicest things uh, about the book, I find, that we tried to redefine people's definition of resilience. I really love that. And one of the things you talk about is the importance of journaling in that. You did touch on it by referencing the you know, traditional concept of manning up in order to get through these types of struggles that we're all facing in life, mentally and physically. I think that the concept of journaling is quite a feminine quality in reflecting, taking time to empathize with someone else's experience, with your own experience, to think about how you could do better tomorrow, how you could be a better person. It's quite funny because when you pick up your book, when you see your social media, people kind of see you as this, this beast, right? This kind of really super machoistic kind of man. And you talk, you talk a lot with like at Middleton, a lot of the kind of big military survival experts. You know, even your Joe Rogan podcast is, if you look at the comments underneath, it's just like, dude, dude, beast, this guy's a beast, this guy's a dude. You know, like it's just kind of there the whole way through. But actually... No, you know, knowing what I know about you, I actually think you have a lot of really feminine traits. You know, you're very nurturing. You're incredibly collaborative in what you're advocating for and how you do what you do. All of these things are obviously kind of more feminine traits, whereas the masculine trait is a bit more competitive, very assertive. Some of the big men of history that you reference in your books are obviously that, that kind of epitome of that masculinity. But the thing is, obviously, we know right now that some of the situations we're in in terms of the environmental crisis, in terms of our health, nutrition, mentality, this has all come because of this rise of ego, basically, and a disconnect from self and a disconnect from nature, especially nature. And I just, I'm interested to understand from you where the concept of stoicism, something you talk about a lot in your book, can play a role in this reconnection, this reintegration with ourselves, with nature. Like, how can stoicism and, and your definition of that and your take of that that you reflect on on your journey play a part in that? You know, I'm, I'm, again, I'm so glad you asked this, just because I think somebody um, posted actually when they, they read my book and, and they said, um, I wish you'd use more female examples. And, and I, I replied and I was like, I wish I had more female friends. I genuinely do. But so I, I went to an all boys school. I then went to Loughborough University, which the, the main degrees there being, you know, sport and engineering as well. So I think it was 70% male. I, I played Great Britain water polo. So I was surrounded by my team, which was, was male. You know, you'll know in water polo as well. Once I think it's the age of 16, men and women no longer played together as well. So I was, I was always kind of surrounded by males. So I think that's why when I talk in my book about uh, a lot of the people that have helped me, it, it's kind of male. But with that said, I draw so much inspiration from Diana Naid, first example, actually. And she's fascinating. For those who don't know, first person, first human ever to swim, Cuba to Florida. Not only did that as a, as a female as well, but what I found fascinating, I, I believe she was almost 60 years old. Don't, don't quote me on that necessarily. So all of these things that she's female and she's over 60, so she's kind of past her athletic peak. No, like she was hard as nails. She's incredible. And when you start looking at open water swimming as well, 
it's not even that the, the women are kind of competing, they're smashing a lot of the guys. Physiologically, yeah, higher body fat, so they're more buoyant, but also as well, I think it gets slightly deeper than that, and we're trying to understand that, which leads me on to now, two years ago, with women being allowed to apply for the special forces. And friends of mine who are Royal Marine PTIs, they were like, we are so excited just because we have found like hundreds of years of tried and tested methods to take young men, they, they turn up at Limpston, the training center with the Royal Marines, and we know exactly how to systematically get them from here and over here, those two weeks to earn their Green Beret. We don't know what that looks like for female psychology. We don't know necessarily how that works, but they're fascinated because if you start getting and again, another hero, Jasmine Paris with the spineback race, you know, breastfeeding between, you know, she's unbelievable. And again, people saying she just had a baby. So biochemically, she was completely wired for sleep deprivation, pain suppression. So speaking to my friends at the Royal Marines, where they're saying, we would love one of them. Yeah, like in terms of females, imagine if we got a hundred of like Diana Naides of like, you know, you know, mm. Jasmine Paris. So it's, it's a really interesting place right now in terms of sports science and sports psychology. And for me, I try and actually don't, I don't try to think in terms of, you know, male, female. I just kind of look at terms of what can I adopt that will help me. Well, this is, this is exactly the point, right? Because I think that we get in this argument over and over again about male, female, but actually as I said before, it's about the qualities. It's about a masculine quality and a feminine quality. And you refer a lot to ancient wisdom of, of our indigenous forefathers. And, and one of the things that they nailed, quite frankly, was this cohesion of feminine and masculine qualities. And that wasn't necessarily split by gender or sex. And I think that it's quite interesting when you think about what you're talking about in terms of mental strength, because Right now, at this moment in time, we have crises coming from every angle. COVID, Black Lives Matter is happening this week, Extinction Rebellion. We, even the political situation in most countries, we forgot about Brexit. You know, all of these things are happening right now all over the place. And kind of in a way, no one's safe. Everyone's being forced into their discomfort zone and that's obviously something where it can be both a good thing and a bad thing I, I actually thrive in this situation mentally because I'm really good at being like right here we go guys and kind of looking out for other people and and lending my mental strength and, and if not my physical strength to other people around me at moments like this and, and the story behind why that is for me but essentially my family was exposed to nuclear testing in central Australia when I was a young child and we suffer ongoing effects of essentially being guinea pigs for a, an Australian nuclear testing exercise. And then, you know, that really defined how my family brought me up and how we embraced the world. And, you know, just constantly asking questions because what I was getting told at school, what I was getting taught out of school didn't make sense and didn't correlate to our direct experience and my direct experience. To come back to your book, you talk a lot about atrophying of muscles. And I think it's quite interesting right now at this time with these crises, we are going to go back to a point where we can atrophy again. I think everyone has to come out now. Everyone has to show this resilience and the stoicism as your reference. So how do you think that a lot of what you've spoken about, you've experienced and now you know, is going to apply to that? How do you think it's going to translate to the everyday person, you know? So I think one thing that's been brilliant about lockdown and, and everything that's happened is it's just forced us to have 
uncomfortable conversations, almost with ourselves, with other people, and look inward as well. I loved uh, sociology at university. I only did a few modules, but I loved it because it kind of just teaches you to uh, ask questions, like, you know, looking at society going, but why is it like that? Looking at, you know, everything from capitalism and feminism and just kind of just saying why. These are social constructs. The world around us has been created. And I love what you just said there, that when you went to school, it was then part of a system and you were going to be taught this, this and this. And you were going, hang on, but that's, that's not actually, you know, my experience now. And, and when you start looking at Ralph Waldo Emerson as well, who talks about self-empowerment, that's the only form of education. That is one thing that I love. So I think right now it's brilliant that people are saying people are waking up and I, I don't like using the term woke, but you know, there, there's this idea that a lot of people are going, hang on, why? Again, I fortunately had a, a nice experience, sort of similar to yours, but, but a nicer version, which was when I went to go and live with the Jamanawa tribe out in the um, Amazon jungle. What I found fascinating out there is they are kind of removed from society. And when I was kind of welcomed into that tribe, it was amazing that I got to see what humans would do if they weren't given any social constructs, weren't told, you know, these are pre-agreed rules, regulations, this is how you should think. And there was, and to this day, I don't actually know what his diagnosis was, but there was, there was one part of the tribe, there was one person in the tribe, um, he was about the same age as me as well. I think he had cerebral palsy, but what I loved is within the tribe, he wasn't even told that he had cerebral palsy because they didn't know what that was. So he wasn't labeled anything. He certainly wasn't told that he had any restrictions. Oh, this is your label and these are your restrictions. So instead they just kind of went, oh yeah, okay. So he's not all that good with a gun when we go hunting because he's kind of not got those motor skills. But he's amazing. He's caring. He's, he's a great cook. He's great at tracking. He was brilliant at tracking. You could tell us wherever anything was and not to go there. He was telling me not to go and eat certain fruits. And there. so he was, he was incredible. But his motor skills weren't there. And I love that as well. The chief of the tribe as well, Alice, she was, you know, female. So again, but it wasn't that, you know, male, female. But no, she was amazing. And she understood. She had an amazing understanding about everything. So it was a, an ayahuasca ceremony. And she understood plants and how it can be used. And even modern medicine now says, ayahuasca works but we just don't know how that's the actual scientific consensus they're like it, it has properties we don't quite know what they are but alice chief of the tribe she was in charge you know but she was female but it wasn't the very fact that she was female male it wasn't the fact that you know the friend that i was referring to had cerebral palsy no and it was it was for me really quite enlightening seeing that if no one is told they're disabled able-bodied disabled female male black white and it just functioned perfectly I want to talk about that, actually, because that does come back to the question in that ayahuasca and a lot of the stuff that you've done and experienced is about expanding your mind. And it's about getting yourself out of that comfort zone and really seeing that the world is a bigger place and that you're capable of much more. But then you've got this intersect right now where actually all of that stuff is being imposed on us. So we almost don't have the time to go out and experience these things and to learn these lessons and to have that expansion of our mind. How do you think that people can do that whilst simultaneously dealing with the current realities, which are really scary, really immediate, both from an environmental and social perspective? How do you think, or is it maybe something you haven't thought about before, but how do you think we could get there? I, yeah, honestly, so I don't know. I've been asked my opinion on this quite a lot with everything that's happening out in America. And I'm like, let's be honest. Let's look at like my point of view. I am a 34-year-old white male living in Cheshire. The best thing I can do right now is, is try and learn, listen. That's kind of what I'm trying to do right now. But I think a lot of people need to do that. But also take that 
sociological approach. So the only thing that I would say is when you're trying to learn, just question everything. Again, going back from Aristotle, Seneca, Epictetus, the ancient Stoics, they were doing the same thing. Just ask why. Why is it like that? And essentially looking at a lot of the protests right now happening in Birmingham, London, just say, why? What's happened? But the biggest thing with sociology is, is just question everything. And that's what I'm essentially trying to do. You're right, during an ayahuasca ceremony, you essentially do that using ayahuasca, but try and do it just daily. Just ask why. Yeah. So that's something I'm trying to do. Yeah, I mean, that's really good advice. I think it's incredibly powerful that you do that with, with such humility because someone of your platform that has a lot of people that you speak with and connect with, I would imagine at the same time you're being pressured into having opinions and you're being pressured into taking action that both you and I, being fairly privileged white people, we shouldn't be making those decisions. And we don't know enough. Well, I personally don't know enough yet, right? I've watched what's happened in the last couple of weeks with Black Lives Matter. And it's been really interesting for me because I'm angry on behalf of them. And my anger is deep-seated because I'm already such an angry person about how we treat the planet. That is my big anger angle. And I know that we're going to find these solutions. I was asked a question yesterday, do I believe that ultimately the fashion industry is going to be part of the solution and can have a net positive impact on the planet and, and ultimately our health? And I said, I have to believe that because otherwise I can't get up tomorrow. And something you talk about in your book is about a lot of people have told you that what you're seeking to achieve, you won't be able to. Lots of people said, oh, you'll never be able to swim around the UK. You'll never be able to do this. You'll never be able to do that. And I'm sure that you get a lot of that criticism and expectation pushing on you all the time. So how do you wake up every morning with a smile? How do you remain such an incredibly infectious person? I know you speak a lot in the book about the power of the smile. I, I think sometimes it comes when you start looking at the teaching of Aristotle, when he talks about this idea of eudaimonia. So eudaimonia, he claims, is, is more than happiness. He believed that happiness was a bit strange. It didn't quite fulfill what he wanted. So eudaimonia basically states that in order to be happy in life, you need to suffer. You need to labor. It's not going to be pleasant. But you know what? Happiness without fulfillment is, is failure. Great example is if I gave you a million pounds right now, would you be happy? You'd be like, yeah, I'll be really happy. I've got a million pounds. It's great. And it's like, okay, but what if you earned a million pounds? What if you earned it by doing your hobby? You're working for a charity, working for a cause, working for something close to your heart. And there was that period of struggle. And at the end, you weren't given the million pounds. You earned a million pounds. Well, you wouldn't be happy. You'd have achieved eudaimonia. There's a slight difference. So I think what you're doing and what everybody hopefully listening can take from this is this idea of eudaimonia find a higher purpose and know that you will be happy in the end when i swam around great britain i was happy at the end but it was suffering it was wearing jellyfish on the face it was like i'd lost parts of my tongue you know but the whole thing at the end it was eudaimonia slightly going off on a bit more of a tangent now as well but that's something that's changed for me a lot in that a lot of people have said it's been two years now since the great british swim and everybody said you know, what are you going to do now? And, and I've just sort of thought about it quite a lot because I didn't want to go straight into a, another swim or anything like that. And I just, I've said, basically, if I can do something for a higher purpose, so eudaimonia, but for a higher purpose, even looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as you start to move up at the top is this like self-actualization, philanthropy, doing something bigger than yourself. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. The GB swim, and I acknowledge this in the book, was... Um, for personal reasons, it was for intrinsic reasons. It was my Captain Webb moment when he swam across the English Channel in 1875. 
people said it can't be done. You know, tides are too strong, water's too cold, but diet of beef broth and brandy, breaststroke, all the way across. And for me, I was just like, yes. For me, for intrinsic reasons, I want to swim around Great Britain so I can just intrinsically go to anywhere on the coast and just sit there with some fish and chips and go, I'll swim around that. However, I don't want to do something like that again because otherwise it's just another record. You're essentially doing that as well. When people are saying, what are you doing, Emma? It's hard. No one's listening. You're like, yes, because it's eudaimonia. There's got to be struggle. There's got to be suffering. There's got to be labor. But at the end, how sweet will it be? I really, really glad you touched on that, actually, because both when I was reading your books and are you familiar with James Smith? Yeah. Anyway, so he writes a book about this is not a diet book and he kind of takes the anti approach to nutrition and health and, and sports science in many ways. But whether or not he's factually correct, he wins because he stays true to his message and he ultimately kind of doesn't let people derail him with their own opinions and for that reason, he's got a following. And even though he's a bit of a dick, I do, I just think I can relate to him on so many levels because I've had so many people for all the years of my career and even the years of me being a child where I was asking, why are we destroying nature? Why are we killing animals? Why are we polluting the ocean? Why are we consuming our way to masses of landfill and polluting the air? And I've been asking those questions my whole life and ultimately challenging the system and actually my backgrounds in engineering and mining and construction. So my challenge has always been to the impossible in many ways. And I've had so many people all these years telling me, be more quiet, be less pushy, be less advocate, smile and be patient and wait for these things to happen. And in many ways, I see what I do in my role with a lot of other, by the way, much smarter people is similar to you dragging a tree across the ocean because people think it's mad and people think it's fruitless and, and futile, but I'm not going to stop doing it. I can't see an alternative way to live. And that's just, that's the answer to why I do it, I guess. So why do you do what you do? Is it because you have this end goal or is it because you like to iterate and just be better every day and you like to just keep expanding your horizons or is it like, is there a version of yourself as Triton of the Ocean in 20, 30, 40 years time that you want to achieve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's changed a lot. So the end goal, I suppose, has changed quite a lot. For me, I love sports science. So I, I just love exploring the, the perceived limits of the human body. So that's why it was. I also love writing. So for me, similar to you in some ways, my life was really simple in that I was just, I do a crazy athletic adventure and then I go to Loughborough Uni and I speak to all of the experts and we reverse engineer, deconstruct it and put it down on paper so we can learn about it. It was, it was a huge honour that I got an, uh, an honorary doctorate after the, the GB swim for all of my research into it. And that was amazing because we took swimming outside of the realms of conventional sport and we started to study sleep deprivation, you know, limiting limitations and research and restrictions. So that was the goal because that's what I studied. That's what, what I've always been passionate about. But also as well, I feel that now only two books in that I've really learnt all I could for those. And, and, and I'm kind of at that point now where if people were saying, you know, oh, when's the next um, fitness book coming out? I'm like, they're pretty well written. They're all I, they're, that's all I know. So I, I don't have a lot left to give in that regard. So 
I'm now kind of looking at a, a new purpose in some ways. And that's what I've been doing for two years now whilst trying to finish this book to document what I learned because otherwise there'd have been no point. I think to, to answer your question, Emma, you're absolutely right. I think if I'd have swum around Great Britain, got out and gone, look, aren't I amazing? Then everyone would have been like, all right, mate. Like, no, that wasn't the purpose. And like I've said, it was to reverse engineer, deconstruct it to show that there's nothing special about me and the strategies that I use, everyone can use. However, now it's, it's looking at what, what else, like how else can I apply myself? What else is that, that purpose? Eudaimonia, how can it express itself in something else? So I've said it before, but right now I would put my goggles back on um, and look at a swim. If it was gonna raise money for a charity, if it was gonna add a voice to a cause, Again, like the Bantham retreat last year was, was just incredible because it was just for those people who, who don't know, um, the Vivo retreat down in Bantham. And it's the best way I can describe it is just a tribe, a collective tribe of people who are just sharing ideas and theories. I learned so much from Dr. Rongan as well, listening to him, Galahad, Asher. I learned so much. And now I think taking that, I understand that now. And in two years, I've been digesting those theories and ideas. I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not going to create a gigafactory. I'm not Leonardo DiCaprio either. I can't speak to the UN. I'm not Greta. Uh, I don't have millions, you know, that I can influence. But one thing I'm not bad at is I'm quite good at floating and eating. So if floating and eating can help in any way, I'm a little bit like I'm here to help in any way I can. If it can't, then I'm like, cool, I'll get back in my box because <laughs> I'm not needed. I really think that's so beautiful. In many ways, I'm very jealous of you because it's quite a burden to know what you were put on this earth to do and then try and work around it. Like I've never known that my purpose on this planet was anything other than, you know, protecting the trees and trying to create this vision of our future that looks like Pandora in Avatar, which is where I want to leave this podcast, actually. We're going to ask every single person on this podcast to describe to us in pictures, in words, what's your vision for a, a regenerative future? You know, is it everyone healthy, everyone out in nature exercising, like everyone swimming around the UK? What is it that you dream that you want people and the planet to look like in the future? Yeah, I love that. I, I think it's, it's a hybrid and I think it's got to be a hybrid and that's why I've loved working with Vivo for so long now, just because it's, it's understanding that there's always going to be a commercial need for things. There's always going to be that commercial motive. Um, and again, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but this whole concept of um, your ikigai, Japanese concept, which is uh, basically made up of, of four things. It, it describes this sense of purpose, eudaimonia, everything that we just talked about there. But in, in Japan, they, they refer to it as your ikigai, and it's made up of what you're good at, what you enjoy doing, what you can be paid for, and what the world needs. And it's those four pillars right there that I would love everybody to achieve. However, when you start looking at big corporations and it's what they're good at, you know, it's what they can be paid for, but, but is it what the world needs? You know, and, and a lot fall down on that one. So it's not their guy. And I think in, in a lot of ways, I would love it if it's collective because you have to do what the world needs. So that's one thing that I would love. And I, I'm just gutted it's not on this year, but the, the Bantham retreat was amazing because Vivo, Barefoot, Galahad and Asher built it on an guy. You know, it, it's what they're good at. You know, it's what they enjoy. Uh, it's what they can be paid for, but it's what the world needs as well. They've absolutely got it. And that's what I would love to see, personally. I love that. It's a really good way to leave it. Thanks very much for having us 
Ross, honestly, it's, it was all my pleasure. And I look forward to your next book. Get <laughs> <laughs> writing or doing another swim. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ross. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Sustain This with Vivo Barefoot. A huge thanks to Ross Edgeley. He was such a good sport and a really inspiring dude. You can find him on Instagram and I highly recommend his new book, The Art of Resilience. You know the deal. If you like the podcast, please give us a rating or leave us a comment on wherever you're listening. If you have any questions or suggestions for future guests, we want to know. That's it for now. See you next week.